Hello, my name's Tony Kemp. Welcome to the series Voices from Immediate Care. This is a series produced by the British Association for Immediate Care, where we talk to different individuals who have involvement in pre-hospital care. Some of the names are extremely well-known, others maybe not quite so well-known, but they all represent the history of immediate care. We're talking to Dr Neville Silverstone. Neville was a founder member of Basics, uh, a peer of Ken Easton, and in fact has been active within pre-hospital immediate care since the late 1960s. A GP, Neville talks to us about his early days of becoming involved in pre-hospital care, of meeting Dr Ken Easton, our founder, and then of organising general practitioners across his, his local region to also become involved and in setting up the uh, Mid-Anglia General Practitioner Activity Scheme, today known as MACPAS. Well, it, uh, it all began when Ken Easton and I um, were voted or selected uh, as GPs of the year by General Practitioner magazine. And I knew nothing at all about uh, immediate care. And uh, we got talking and he explained what he had done setting up the North Riding of Yorkshire immediate care scheme. And I told him something about the radio paging service I'd set up uh, in Cambridgeshire. Then I went up to stay with Ken for a week and uh, he encouraged me to set up something similar uh, in the Cambridge area and that's how I set, started to set up Magpass. That would roughly be about 19, the end of 1969 or the beginning of 1970. So this was the days when the ambulances were county council or borough council? Well, yes. The, uh, the area that I wanted to cover were, were the counties of Cambridgeshire and Huntingdonshire, each with its own medical officer of health, each with its own um, county fire officer, and also the silk of Peterborough, which is rather unique in having one man who was the county fire officer and the county ambulance officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they had their own fire service, ambulance service. So it was three separate uh, areas, but it was covered by the Mid-Anglia Police, a single police authority covering three areas. We uh, called a meeting of all the orthopedic consultants, the uh, casual departments were run by the orthopedic surgeons and so we called all the uh, fire officers, the county medical officers, the chief constable and opened the meeting to GPs in all three areas. About 140 um, mainly rural GPs uh, replied 
and we set about raising funds and we set up a committee of MAGPAS attended by uh, fire officers, medical officers of health and some GPs. We had one GP locally, uh, Dr. Derek Cracknell, who we elected to be chairman of MAGPAS. So we had a pilot scheme for a year and then we reviewed it. And at the end of the year, about 40 GPs decided it wasn't for them. And so we were left with a nucleus of 80, I think 86 GPs. And they pretty well stayed with us for the next 25 years. You very deliberately focused on general practitioners. Was it that the hospital doctors were not interested? Well, the hospital doctors felt that they had no more experience than we had. We were really feeling our our way and learning by making mistakes. Um, Because after all, we started um, with just a concept. We had no money. We had no equipment. The only thing that we had was the uh, radio pages that were um, uh, part of the medical answering service. And uh, we did extend the range of the pocket pages by having uh, a second transmitter at Huntingdon and a third transmitter on the hospital uh, roof at Peterborough, and so we could cover the whole area. Who was paging you? Was that ambulance, the ambulance control, as we would understand it now? Or? Well, the, um, the medical answering service that I had the first year, an operator uh, was, who was a matron at um, one of the geriatric hospitals in Cambridge, Um, developed um, rheumatoid arthritis and uh, she was prepared to cover um, have a trans uh, control equipment in her house and operate it herself for uh, 15 hours a day seven days a week um, for the first year Um, and then for the second year um, we had another nurse, and when the uh, system closed down at 11 o'clock at night, their husbands would take all the transmitting equipment to the other nurse's house about two miles away, and then she would do it overnight. How big was this equipment? Um, it wasn't all that big. It was uh, a box with 20 buttons on it. One button operated one pager. Right. Um, and uh, the pager could be shared between different doctors in the same practice. Um, but the, pay- the MagPass pages were, dot- were for GPs who participated in the scheme. I'd been badgering the manufacturers, Pi Telecommunications, to develop a paging instrument. And 
they said that they couldn't see a future of it. You bleeper went off, but you didn't know what you were wanted for. You couldn't ask. You didn't have any two-way communication. And I said, well, you know, we're out in the country. There are telephone boxes. We could follow a telephone line to somebody's house and knock on the door and tell them that you were a doctor on call and could use the telephone. There were ways around it. Um, and, uh, and it coincided with the home office um, wanting a better means of calling out rural firemen, part-time firemen, and uh, coast guards and lifeboat men. And so the first 20 instruments were given to us by Pi to do um, field trials. And they set up the transmitter system at no cost to us. As far as the medical equipment and the roof lights, we set about fundraising and I was very fortunate in that the editor of the Cambridge News was a patient of mine, so we got a lot of publicity. We set up a, <laughs> set up a system whereby after we had dealt with uh, the, an accident, we rang up the Cambridge News and they would send out uh, someone from the photographic uh, department of the newspaper to pick up um, a roll of film, a cassette, and um, take it back and try and get it, it in the paper for that evening. So we got, we got publicity. And this was very much uh, almost a do-it-yourself effort. Very, very much a do-it-yourself. First year, we organised um, a ball, a Magpass ball, in the Graduate Centre in Cambridge, and we aimed very high with this. We had Dick Emery as the compare, the Sylvester's orchestra as the band. Uh, we had a steel band during the interval. Across the road was the Garden House Hotel. They provided all the chefs. Uh, socially, it was a tremendous success. Financially, it was a disaster. Um, <laughs> but we uh, we cashed in on the disaster and got the various newspapers to uh, publicise the service and how we had this fantastic ball, lost thousands, and uh, it had an effect of a lot of people pouring money in, but it came to training. We were feeling our way. None of us had any experience. We didn't know what sort of equipment we would use. And uh, it was all blind men looking for a, a penny. So what sort of calls were you being uh, tasked to? Uh, we were called directly. Um, from the three ambulance services, uh, we put a, a radio transmitter in each of the three uh, ambulance control rooms. So, uh, 
and also in the police control room. So whoever got the call first would put it to our control room. At the end of the first year, we moved our control room into Addenbrooke's hospital and page the doctor and it's mainly a rural area and the local doctor probably in 75 percent of cases was first on the scene and for instance ken easton's own um son who became the uh, uh president of wolfson college in cambridge his son who you also met at the age of 14 ran across the road uh, for the school bus, got hit by a car, ended up with a fractured femur, and uh, the local doctor was on the scene, and put his leg in a traction splint, set up an IV, gave him an analgesics, and uh, Ken rang me up to say how impressed he was that the Magpass, that the Magpass doctor had arrived so quickly at the scene and uh, turn us back. So I, I've seen a, a, a picture of you in, in the early days. Um, it's that one by your car. You're wearing, a, it looks like a tweed jacket, uh, a tie, and you've got a, a simple tabard over the top. That, that is your protective personal equipment, it seems. What were you, you know, the, the evolution of, of, of PPE, how did that play out for you? You just turn out in what you were originally wearing, and then it moves yes. into yeah. yeah. Yes, we 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 started just with a tabard, uh, in and it had doctor on in reflective white uh, writing, and then we uh, next thing would replace those with uh, the yellow motorway jackets again with doctor on the front spent an inordinate amount of time fighting bureaucracy. Uh, the uh, lights we had on the roof were issued by the BMA, Mediflash, yes. which is a very uh, weak 25-watt bulb, which was uh, had a red cross on it to the front, and it was green at the back. We weren't allowed to have two-tone horns, everything was a fight um, against uh, bureaucracy. And this is really where basics came in because they could represent all the immediate care schemes which were multiplying in the UK and uh, could be the sort of mother organization uh, in discussions with uh, the Home Office and very much often depends on the local chief constable. He, he, he would say, look, you know, we can see your, uh, the benefit of your attendance and uh, I will give you personal permission for your doctors to put have two-tone horns fitted, and to have uh, blue lights uh, on your roof. So the um, current controversy is driver training to, to use this sort of equipment. What was happening in your day when they first gave you the blue lights and the two-tone horns? We, um, we did 
have the benefit of one of the driving instructors <coughs> with Cambridge Police or Mid Anglia Police. We did have police, fire, and ambulance representation on the MAGPAS committee. We didn't really change the officers. Uh, Dr. Cracknell was the chairman until he retired, and I was vice chairman and secretary for the 25 years that I participated. We started to have motorways in the county, two lines going the other way. We found that the fire service liked to go between the lines of stationary lines of traffic. So drivers looking in their mirror would see the um, fire engines coming in the middle and move out <laughs> the outside lane to the right, the inside lane, lane to the left. The ambulance one always overtook uh, the two lines of traffic on the outside. So they all went back again, the, uh, the, outs <laughs> the outside. When this was the days before we had hard shoulders or anything like that. Um, yes, well, it's just that the, uh, the fire service had its way of doing things. Magpath just got the services talking together and said, let's all agree um, what, are, what, what are we going to do with, because if we all do the same thing then there's a space for each of us, whichever goes first and whichever comes last. And then we set up combined training days so that an ambulance man would hold the jaws of death to get some idea what it was to use cutting equipment. So you obviously had very early involvement with the fire service, bringing cutting equipment. At, right at the beginning, though, did did the fire service provide this rescue? No, the uh, the fire service admittedly was um, mainly concentrated uh, concentrated on dealing with fires. But as the accident rate went up, it became fire and rescue, and rescues overtook numerically the fires. Um, and their equipment became far more sophisticated and they became far more experienced. And then things like longboards came into being. Uh, Magpass doctors would go uh, in the evening and give lectures on uh, immediate medical care, how to put up an IV, how to connect tubing to a bottle. So we could just give the giving set and a, a bottle. In those days, we used HEMAC cell extensively. And the ambulance man would connect it while we put a needle in a vein. And you didn't have to, uh, you didn't have to give them any further instructions. They would just give you the uh, tubing to connect to the needle. And there were no air bubbles in it. And they were very proud of their skills and the acquisition of skills and the relationship between the ambulance men, most ambulance men, 
uh, and the Magpat stock was, was very warm. When did you retire from Magpat and from being a, a, a doctor responding to scenes? I retired in 1996 uh, from Magpat and the whole organisation. Um, and it moved from Cambridge to Huntingdon. Um, and I had nothing further to do with it organisationally, although I did keep in touch with it and it became far more professional. So if you if you look back over your career, you would have seen some quite horrible sights and, and experienced some some quite horrific uh, scenes. What is it that kept you going? What what is it that's given you the strength to to persevere? In the end of twenty five years I attended three and a half thousand incidents. But one of the first things that we realized that we had to do was to provide a a support service um, for colleagues. You would you would return and you'd go over and over in your mind whether everything that you did could not have been improved. Was it was there anything that you didn't do that you should have done? And in addition to the most dreadful sight of of dealing with uh, trauma at the scene. Of course, gruesome, gruesome sights, and sometimes it was unex- unexpected that a doctor might go out and, and find that a dog in the car had been killed, and and that would upset them almost as much as the as the person because it they they, they were dog lovers. Remember a, a young. Um, lady doctor went to an accident where a baby on the back seat, you know, this is pre seat belt days, gone through the windscreen and over a hedge. Nobody even knew that there was a baby in the car. Parents were both killed. This doctor had recently had a baby. We did set up a, a colleague support service and we often go to a colleague and give them the opportunities to talk there about their case and the effects on them personally. It wasn't talked about at all. People felt that doctors could deal with anything. Couldn't. Some of them found the work terribly harrowing and in different ways and this would be picked up by the nurses in the op- in the uh, in the control room they would pick up that the doctor on his return or her return back to base was crying was upset and they would pass it on so right right from the outset you were very aware of the the emotional cost for, for your professional colleagues very, very much aware. I'm, I'm going to call it there, Neville. It's fascinating hearing about the very early days, not just the fact they were the early days, but how you were organised, the radio paging, the use of the nurses. Uh, I, I just can't imagine 
you know, a husband uh, chuntering down the road with a suitcase full of, of kit to set up in somebody else's house for the overnight hours and then chuntering it back the next morning. But absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Okay, well, it's nice talking to you, Tony. And I wish basics all the best. Talking to Neville has been an absolute privilege. Now in his 90s, he has uh, a very clear recollection of those early days. Although much has changed, those of us involved still in pre-hospital care will recognise many of the drivers that are common to all of us who seek to deliver excellence in what we do at the roadside. Neville's an absolute inspiration. His story is immensely interesting. But then again, so are the stories of all those who are featured within Voices from Immediate Care. Thank you for listening.